invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8. We're actually going to be looking at chapter 9, verses 8 to 17, and finishing up on the Noahic covenant, the covenant God made with Noah. Uh, but since it's been over a month since we were in Genesis, I thought we'd just back up to chapter 8 and begin reading in verse 20. So Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, we'll read through to chapter 9, verse 17. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground And all the fish of the sea, into your hands they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So what we just read occurs after the floodwaters subside and Noah and his family uh, depart from the ark. And we have here a fresh start to humanity, with humanity, between God and mankind. And God enters into a covenant here with humanity. And the language that we find throughout these verses, in some cases, as we've noticed this previously, in some cases, it's similar language to God's covenant that he made with Adam back in the garden. But of course, there are very important differences between the two, between those two covenants. Uh, Most notably, in this case, man is not in a state of innocence. Rather, even as we just read in chapter 8, verse 21, the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. Uh, The sinful nature still remains. That problem has not been solved. And so the covenant that is here struck with Noah and with his sons and everyone to come after him, this covenant with its commission that we saw in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 9, and this covenant with its promise, which we'll look at today in verses 8 through 17, This covenant is appropriate then to man in his cursed condition. There's a covenant with Adam in his state of innocence. Now that is is a fallen world. There is a curse upon the earth. It is still present after the flood. And God gives a new covenant here 
uh, with Noah, and it is appropriate to man in this state of sin. And so we are continuing here to look at this covenant with Noah that was struck so long ago in a time so different than our own in many ways, in a place that's so far removed from us. And yet this covenant carries with it a, an amazing and maybe to some surprising relevance for us today. And as we noted previously, this covenant is still in effect even today, and we are in this with God. And so before we jump into verses 8 to 17, where we'll spend most of our time, I do want to just give a little bit of review from our previous sermon from verses 1 to 7, since it was so long ago. Um, And then we'll get into verses 8 to 17. So if I was to divide this up into two major chunks Uh, Verses 1 to 7, we have this commission that God gives to mankind. And then in verses 8 to 17, which we're going to spend most of our time at, we see the promise of this covenant that God gives to mankind. But let's just review first where we've already been, which will help us today. So we noted several things last time in verses 1 to 7. First of all, the Noahic covenant. And again, when I say Noahic, that's just the word Noah with I-C on the end. Uh, It's maybe not as familiar, but we have the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant struck with uh, Moses as mediator between God and Israel. And now we have this Noahic Covenant here. So the Noahic Covenant first commissions man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's pretty straightforward. It says that exactly. Uh, God intends for mankind after the flood and as he commissions Noah and his sons after him to be fruitful, multiply and spread out across the earth. And if you recall from last time, this upholds implicitly the family. This is the way in which this multiplication is to occur. One man is to join with his wife and they are to have children within this uh, family unit. Uh, That family was established before the fall, as we have seen in Genesis, particularly in chapter 2. God created man and woman, and for this reason, a man shall hold fast, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. We read that is... Still in effect, that is still an expectation of humanity on this side of the fall. Jesus affirms this even in the New Testament. Uh, That is implied here as we be fruitful and multiply. The family is is authorized here or should say upheld here. We we also notice this implies a few other things as well, like technological advance and exploration. If man is to spread out and, and fill the earth, it's going to require Checking things out. What's on the other side of the mountain? What's it going to take to live over there in that part of the earth? Uh, If you think about how difficult it would be to simply live and survive in even our city in this day, and even in October, it's not as cold as it could be, if all we had was our bare hands and really nothing else. This is implying that we're going to need to be industrious and resourceful and, and advance ourselves in technology. And we have done that and We are recipients of that today, even as we sit in this warm building. So this Noahic covenant first commissions man to multiply and to to fill the earth. Secondly, the Noahic covenant commissions man to steward the earth's resources well for the good of mankind. God has given, specifically, we see he talks about giving plants and animals to mankind for food, just as he had given plants originally. He now explicitly uh, gave uh, animals into man's hand. He says, I give you everything. Uh, we're able to eat whatever is wise and good to eat of the creatures of the earth. We noted also that the animals were put in subjection to man by God through this fear that God puts upon the creatures after the fall. So it is right to eat from the earth, to eat plants, even to eat animals. This implies it is right to cultivate plants and trees, to domesticate animals for food purposes, and also for other reasons that would be helpful to us, helping us with our rodents or helping us plow our fields or whatever it might be. So again, that the original dominion that God had given to Adam that he was to go forth and, and have, that, that's not possible in light of the fall now. But man is still the only creatures of the earth that is created in God's image that still has ongoing relevance. And God, in his aid to man, helps us out. After the fall, the animal kingdom is a wild and beastly 
place and God puts this fear of the animals upon them and that helps us as, as we seek to live out our existence and multiply and fill the earth and so on. Again, we also noted that this would imply that there is authorization from God here, again, for technological advance to help us as we seek to uh, plant food and crops and to do that as best we can and efficiently as we seek to domesticate animals and uh, use them for our food and, and other purposes. I think it's also, we talked about this, would suggest and imply that commerce and trade is going to be a legitimate thing for mankind to do, as one might have an expertise in animal husbandry and another in uh, sowing fields and farming. Uh, there'd be right to join together and trade with one another. We, if, you, if you think back to even right after the fall, already we see that there was already men specializing in one over the other. Uh, East, or, uh, sorry, um, Help me out. Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. Cain was a man of the field. Abel had his flocks, right? They specialized in these particular areas. I think it's implied here that it'd be right to, to as we spread out and multiply, to, to trade with one another and so on. A third thing we looked at, the Noahic Covenant commissions man to uphold retributive justice. The specific issue addressed in verses 5 to 7 is the issue of murder. If a man murders another, then God requires his life to be taken by man. The general principle of justice that this is laying out for us is that the penalty should fit the crime. That there is to be penalty for crime and is to be proportionate to the crime that is committed. Now, this principle is... Uh, known elsewhere in Scripture as eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or life for a life. So as man would fulfill this mandate, sin is clearly still in the world. There's going to be murder. This implies that. There's going to be need to address grievances with one another. There's going to be need for some structure in order to help us carry that out. And we noted that this is implicitly authorizing authority, governing authorities, governments. In the New Testament, we are explicitly told that these governing authorities possess from God, as his ministers, the right to bear the sword, to carry out the very punishment that is described here in Genesis 9, 6. Obviously, we're moving quickly through this. You can go back if you missed that or, or want to know more of the logic behind some of these claims I'm making. But that's a summary of what we looked at. And then the, really the final thing we noted in closing is that the Noahic covenant is not salvific. That is, it doesn't save anyone. By being a member of this covenant, it doesn't mean that you're going to heaven when you die. It doesn't mean that your sins are forgiven. It is a covenant, rather, that stabilizes creation. It does not save it, but it stabilizes it for a time. The created world is still under God and under his authority. This is not any sort of, there's nothing neutral about this. This is not a neutral territory. There is still right and wrong. God defines what that is. But life under this Noahic covenant is something that is distinct from what the New Testament calls the kingdom of God. And so this is a brief summary of what it is we've seen and looked at last time. And we're going to press on with this now and look at verses 8 to 17, where the covenant is now formalized and God makes his promise here to not flood the earth. So again, last time we looked at the commission that God gives to man, and now we're focusing on the promise that God makes in this covenant. And we will see that it is a promise that brings a certain stability to creation, ensuring that worldwide judgment will not occur prior to the appointed end, and ensuring that a stabilization occurs of this created order that allows God's promise of sending his son to come to pass. So we've already 
hinted at this, stated this a little bit, and we'll see this more now as we get into verses 8 to 17. Again, the created order is cursed under Adam's fall. The covenant of works has been violated, but it is now preserved under the Noahic covenant, such that God can and will and does fulfill his great purpose of redeeming sinners through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this promise of preservation is what we look at now here. And so let's jump in. And first, we're going to look at the parties of the covenant, the parties of the covenant. What I mean by that is who is involved in this covenant? Who's in this? So this begins by revealing to us in verse 8 to 10, who is involved, who these parties are. So let's look at this again. Verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So we see here there are three parties involved in this covenant. And the first one is God. God is the one who establishes this covenant. In fact, he says, he calls it my covenant. I establish my covenant. It is his covenant. And this is the way it is with any covenant that involves God and mankind. It is set on God's terms. He is the one who establishes it. Uh, Nowhere in scripture, nowhere ever does mankind approach God and say, I would like to establish a covenant with you. Here are the things that I will do for you. And here's the things I expect of you. And here are the curses that come to pass if one of us fails or whatever. We aren't in a position to go to God and do that. Uh, We do see in the Bible sometimes man making covenants with other men or nations between different nations making covenants with one another. That can happen. But when it comes to God and a covenant God strikes, it's his covenants. He strikes them. He makes them. It's not man's doing. So God is, is one party of this covenant. And the second party here is every human being. It's a big party, but it, we'll, we'll lump that under one party. Every human being who has ever lived since Noah. So notice this is addressed to Noah and to his sons. In verse 8, that's who God speaks to. This is the same as the commission that he gave back in verse 1. God addresses Noah and his sons. And then it explicitly includes all of their offspring. He says, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. So again, that is every single individual who's ever going to live. These are the only people alive at this point upon the earth. So the offspring that's going to come after them, later he'll even say all future generations. It's everyone who is to come. So just maybe as an aside here, I think this is another reason why it matters that we understand these chapters of Genesis to be teaching us actual history. Actual historical events that really truly occurred. So, you know, some people, for example, will say things like, well, the the flood, they'll try to argue that the the flood here was maybe just a local flood that Noah experienced and a lot of people died, but it's not worldwide and it doesn't, it didn't wipe out everybody. So they'll try to argue that Noah, there there would have been other people who survived in other parts of the earth and so on. But again, if, if that's the case, then if you try to determine who are the parties of the covenant with Noah, it would be hard to determine that. It's Noah and his sons and their offspring, but then all the other people who are survived, maybe they're not really part of this, or are they? It's just, it's just one of the complications that come when you don't read this as telling us an actual historical event. But I think what we have already seen, and again here, it's very clear that this is telling us that everybody was wiped out except for the eight people that were on the ark. And so this covenant then is struck between God and and, and the human beings whom he had preserved on the ark and all of their offspring and future generations to come, which is, again, everybody who would ever live. There's a third party mentioned here, and it's all of the rest of God's creatures. That is to say, all the animals. So verse 9 says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. 
the, the animals, these beasts of the earth, they are not on the same plane as mankind. Again, only man is created in the image of God. But they are still creatures that God has created, and he does still show care for them. These creatures of the earth have suffered as well, if you will, under the fall. All of creation groans under the weight of this curse. And the animals were destroyed during the flood. We know that. Everything that had breath of life in it was destroyed, except for these animals that were preserved through the ark. Again, God has care for all of his creation. There's that, you maybe remember the the sort of, it seems strange to us, ending to the book of Jonah, when Jonah is upset because God spared the, the Ninevites. He's complaining about that, and God's rebuking him and saying, should I not care about these people who don't know their right hand from their left hand, this city that has 120,000 people in it and much cattle? End of Noah, or end of Jonah, end of the book of Jonah. It just kind of stands, and cattle, where'd that come from? But God cares about his creatures. He cares about his creation. And he includes in this all the animals of the earth as well. So in short... This covenant is between God and then, on the other hand, all animate life. Everything that has the breath of life in it. Those that were the target of the flood. Man and animal alike. So again, we noted this last time. All of humanity is included in this this covenant. In both the commission that was given that we looked at last time and also as recipients of the promise here. This is not just a promise that is benefited by Christians or received benefit from by the, uh, the Old Testament Jews, for example. Everyone is under this and receives its promise as well. So we've looked at the parties of the covenant, but now let's look at the promise of the covenant. We've started out with alliteration. The parties of the covenant, the promise of the covenant, we will blow that up on the next point, don't worry. But uh, the, the parties of the covenant, now the promise What is the promise that is in this covenant? Well, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So the promise is to never cut off all flesh ever again, never to do this, never to send this flood again. Specifically, He says here, he's not going to do this by means of a flood. That's what he's not going to send. And so we might wonder, we might ask, well, it just says he's not going to send a flood again to destroy all the earth. But could it be that he'll use some other means to do this? Maybe he'll not do it with a flood, but he'll do it with fire or something else. But I don't think this leaves that option open. I say this in part because of what we read earlier from the end of chapter 8. God has already said he's not going to do this earlier. He's now formalizing it in the covenant in uh, the verses that we are looking at. But back in chapter 8, verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So in chapter 8, it is stated more generally. It includes the statement that so long as earth remains, which I take to mean before the appointed end, the seasons as we know it, along with day and night, they're not going to come to an end. They will continue. So it's stated more generally. He's not going to destroy everyone again. He's not going to do this. So then the intention of the promise in chapter 9 is that he'll never again have a repeat flood event or anything like it in which all flesh is going to be destroyed. So it's not limited purely to not flooding the earth, but to not sending a flood-like catastrophe to wipe everyone out. Again, I want to draw your attention to the tremendous kindness that this is of God to make this promise. I... It's so easy. We talk about it, and we need to remind ourselves continually. It's so easy to forget just how sinful our condition is and just how holy 
and good God is. When we consider chapter 8, verse 21, that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, back up to chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. These devastating statements about the sinful condition of mankind. We can start to think that we are owed something. Certainly our world works this way. Bad things don't come to them really, and they, they, they begin to think they are greater than other people, that judgment is never coming. There's an arrogance about mankind. What a kindness it is that the seasons do change. And they keep going. That if the Lord doesn't return prior, we have confidence that at some point, spring will come again here. And again, as we read in chapter 8, verse 21, this promise is not owing to man's goodness. It's not owing to the fact that man has learned his lesson after the flood. This promise is purely a kindness from God. If, if it was his solution to wipe out the earth because of sin and to do this continually, he would have to do it every generation because the intention of man's heart remains evil from his youth. The sinful condition remains. It's going to pass down to Noah's sons and Noah's sons' sons and so on to all of us. God would have to flood the earth regularly, but he's committing here to not do that. He doesn't do that. And it's not because we're good. Notice also here, the promise is not contingent upon faithfulness or obedience to the commission that he gives in the Noahic covenant. There is indeed a commission, be fruitful, multiply, and so on. But the promise here is not contingent upon us doing that with excellence or perfectly or giving our best shot at it. If it was, this covenant would be violated and we'd be right back to the promise being null and God wiping out the earth again. This is simply a promise that God makes, a sworn oath from the Almighty that the flood will never again occur. Things will continue until the appointed end. And so again, it is right to see this as part of God's common grace to mankind, that he has not wiped out the earth again and again and again. This isn't a saving grace, but it is no doubt a grace that everyone benefits from who, who lives. So we have the parties of the covenant, the promise of this covenant, and finally, the sign of the covenant. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Again, there's that reference that this is with all people, all future generations. And this covenant here is given a sign, we're told. Now, not every covenant is explicitly said to have a sign attached to it. But we do explicitly see that in a few cases, including obviously right here. Also in Genesis 17, verse 11, with circumcision, it is a sign of the covenant God makes with Abraham. That is brought into then the Mosaic covenant as well. Also, the Sabbath is referred to as a sign between God and Israel. Many will refer to baptism and to the Lord's Supper then as the sign of the new covenant. Now, this is part of a, a, a larger conversation about signs of the covenant and signs and seals, as, as some call them. Uh, we won't get into all of that right now. Uh, interestingly, maybe interesting to some, but our, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith calls the Lord's Supper and baptism, the, the ordinances or sacraments, signs, and, uh, signs of the covenant. Uh, the Baptist Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession that we subscribe to, uh, does not use that language. Uh, but I, I do think it has merit when we think of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But we'll leave that for another day. 
But I believe the way to understand what, what is a sign of a covenant, what, what are we talking about? I believe the way to understand it is that a covenant sign is something that is visual, that symbolizes, that's what a sign does, it symbolizes a spiritual reality which reminds us of God's covenant faithfulness. These are physical, visual symbols that remind us of a, that symbolize a spiritual reality and remind us of God's covenant faithfulness. So if we, if we were to think of the Lord's Supper, I think it does fit as calling it as a sign of the new covenant. If you think about it, in the Lord's Supper, we see something visual, and we taste it even, the bread and the cup. And we are reminded of Christ's death for us. And we are reminded not only that of, but of the facts of it, but of the promises attached to it. The promises of the new covenant that his blood brought to pass. We are reminded that, God, that Christ's blood propitiates our sins, satisfies God's wrath for, his, for our sins. That Christ's body, that we are, this, this bread, that he, his body that he offered is for you, as it says. And therefore, as we believe by faith what we are seeing in the visual image, we are reminded that we have confidence that we are indeed forgiven by God. As we are trusting in what these signs are pointing us to, Christ's death for our sins, we are reminded of God's faithfulness toward all who are trusting in his Son. It reminds us that he will not fail to bring about our full and final salvation if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, as one writer says, signs of the covenant of covenants are intended to give the human members of that covenant reassurance. I think we won't go there now, but if you want to, Hebrews 6.17, I think confirms this as the reason why God makes oaths and covenants with man. It's to assure us, to assure our faith. And so here in chapter 9 of Genesis, I think this is made fairly clear. God gives us a sign, something that we would be able to see and be reminded of God's promise and of his faithfulness to keep his word. So let's, let's keep reading here in verse 13 about this sign that he gave. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds... I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And then he more or less repeats it. He says, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So the, the bow that is set in the clouds becomes a pledge, a token of God's grace that he will never again flood the earth and destroy all flesh. Now, interestingly, the sign, I just said signs are meant for man to see and be reminded of God's faithfulness. But if you notice there, it says that this is something that God will see, the bow in the clouds, and he will remember his promise to not flood the earth. So it's important for us to remember that, that phrases like this, when we talk of God remembering things, this is part of God condescending to speak with, with Noah. We should not think that the God of all the universe who is omniscient, who spoke all things into being, you know, he would otherwise forget if he didn't look down and see this, this, this bow in the clouds. Even this idea of God having eyes which he would see with, we know that he is ultimately without physical body as we have. This is speaking after the manner of men here. This sign is ultimately here for the benefit of mankind, to encourage man's faith. As Noah would look up after a torrential downpour, perhaps with trembling, you would maybe 
forgive Noah if he was a little nervous when the clouds rolled in and the storm came down and the wind came up with all that he had been through and seen. And when that cloud, the storm would begin to pass and the sun would begin to shine and the bow would appear in the clouds, he would remember that God in this moment knows and remembers and recalls his promise that he will not violate, that never again will such a storm result in the flooding of the whole earth. It is no doubt given here for the benefit of Noah and his sons and all who would come after as assistance to man's faith. This rainbow is the pledge of God that he will not forget. As for the sign itself, it is referred to as the bow or my bow that is set in the clouds. Now, in English, we have a word for that rainbow. But in Hebrew, it's just the word for bow the instrument that an archer would use for hunting or for warfare, my bow in the clouds. And it's, of course, easy to understand why it might be called that. From the perspective of earth, we look up, and it is very much shaped like a bow. It's an arc in the sky. Now, I'll just, again, as something of an aside here, a skeptic might say, Well, actually, we know now that rainbows are actually full circles. And if you have a certain vantage point from an aircraft, you can actually see this is a round thing. And they might use that to try to dismiss the Bible. See, it's inaccurate. It calls it a bow, but technically we know it's actually a full circle. But I don't think if you were to hear such an objection, I don't think you should be persuaded by such a thing. The Bible here is not intending to give us a scientific explanation of the rainbow here. It is similar to how we find elsewhere the Bible speak of the sun running its course like a strong man. It's speaking of what it is we see and experience on earth. It has every appearance of the sun moving across the sky. It rises In one horizon, and it sets in the other. And the next day, it does it again. It has this appearance of running its course, though we know technically it's stationary. And we revolve around it. We, the earth rotates and spins. Again, it's just speaking as we see it from earth. Even today, we still use the word sunset and sunrise, though technically it's scientifically inaccurate. If God were to say to Noah, I put my circle in the sky, it just wouldn't have made any sense. From Earth's vantage point, it's it's a bow. That's its shape. There's also some debate about the meaning of the bow, the fact that it does take that shape. Some believe this to be depicting... The image of God as a warrior laying aside his bow. His battle bow, he has taken up, he has just, the Lord as a warrior judged the earth in a tremendous act of judgment through this flood. But now as he promises not to do that again, he lays his bow aside. Others have even pointed to the fact that the bow is actually aimed at heaven. As if God is saying, may it be done to me and more if I do not keep my promise. Uh, That is a common refrain in in covenants that are struck. Uh, Later in in Genesis, we will see uh, when God makes covenant with Abraham, Abraham is to divide these animals, and then this uh, fire pot goes through, passes through the parts, and it seems very odd. And in Jeremiah chapter 34, we find out very explicitly what that means. And that is saying, uh, let it be done to me also like these animals if I do not keep my end of the covenant. So it's possible that's what this imagery is with the bow aimed up at the heavens. God is saying, if I don't do this, may it be to me similar to how it is with the Abrahamic covenant. These interpretations are appealing, though they're not spelled out here explicitly. And there are many who remain uncertain that we should read. That might, they say, that might just be reading a little bit too much into the bow. It may well be enough to say that it is called a bow because of its shape. And as one writer says, 
because of the obvious glory of the rainbow against the gloom of the cloud. The thunder clouds, dark and powerful and sometimes terrifying as they may be, contrasted by the brilliant colors of the rainbow as the sun shines through. This reminds us of God's common grace to man, even in the midst of, even against the backdrop of the darkness of a fallen world. And you've probably seen these. This is one part of the world where we can often see this with great splendor, driving back here from the city or wherever, and this wicked storm. You can see these tremendously dark and foreboding clouds, and yet here comes the sun through it as well, and you see the rainbow up against the clouds, and even now it's still shocking. We, we, we call attention to it, to everyone who's in our vehicle. But in light of the bigger picture of the book of Genesis, and indeed of the whole Bible, I think we need to also see that there is yet another purpose here to this preservation of the sin-cursed earth with its sinful inhabitants within it. As we have seen, the book of Genesis is telling us a story about a particular family line from which the Savior of the world would come. The Noahic covenant gives mankind as a whole a commission to engage in, and it gives the promise of the covenant that brings a stability to this creation. But it is not just a stability for stability's sake. It is not simply a delay out of God's kindness to the judgment that we deserve. More than this, it brings a stability that ensures that Christ will come and that when he does, there will indeed be many people from many different nations, tribes, and tongues for him to come and save. It is a stability that allows God to enact his plan of redemption. If he were to wipe out creation every generation or two, then he'd always be starting over. You wouldn't have various nations. You wouldn't have nearly as many people. And so the flood is a warning shot, if you will, about what mankind deserves. It is a type of the final judgment that is to come. It's it's a reminder, again, that even though we haven't seen anything like it since, it still functions as a reminder of what it is that mankind deserves on account of our sins. But in the meantime, until the final judgment does come, God has a purpose, a different purpose, to save a people through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as we read from Galatians 4 earlier, in the fullness of time, that is, at the right time of God's appointing, Christ did come into the world To secure salvation, taking up our obligations to obey God's law perfectly. And this he did. And then on the cross, he offered himself as the perfect, spotless Lamb of God in the place of sinners to be a sacrifice for us, to substitute himself in on our account, to pay the full penalty that our sins deserve. Not only just being wiped out off this planet, but eternity in hell under God's condemnation for our sins. And and what greater evidence of just how sinful our sins are, just how bad it is that that is what we deserve. And Christ rose again from the dead in victory over those sins. He has ascended to the Father's right hand and he has now commissioned his church to take the good news forth. That there is not only a temporal mercy from God to sinners that we enjoy each day that we have breath in our lungs, that we are promised in the Noahic covenant, but that there is an eternal grace from God, forgiveness of our sins, eternal life available to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not only a common temporal grace, but a saving and eternal grace. Sons and daughters of Noah are called then to repent of our sins and to place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be forgiven and recipients of God's saving grace. And for all who do, 
We are transferred into God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is here now, breaking into the present, growing and prospering, even in the midst of a sin-cursed world, even when the authorities of this age would rage against the gospel and against the Lord's people. The kingdom is here now, but as Jesus taught us, the kingdom of God is not coming in this iteration, yet in ways that can be observed. It doesn't have walls and a physical location we can just point to and say, that's it, that's where it is. He says, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This kingdom of God in its present form is entered into by faith as God draws men and women to himself through the proclamation of the good news. And as God causes men and women upon the hearing of the good news to be born again, the kingdom of God is here now. We also affirm, of course, and know that it is not yet here in its fullness. The world continues now under the Noahic covenant, bound by the commission set forth within it, experiencing God's mercy as he does not destroy creation, allowing time for more people yet to believe in Christ and enter into his kingdom. And then one day, Christ will return and he will establish his kingdom in its fullness. And this will be the time when that Noahic covenant comes to conclusion. When earth as we know it now will no longer be, will not remain, but there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Remember, this is not saying this promise here that there will never ever be a judgment that's worldwide. Even at the end of chapter 8, it says, while the earth remains, there's going to be a time when it won't remain, but until that appointed end time, seed time and harvest, etc., shall not cease. There is an appointed end, and it coincides with our Lord's return. And so again, this covenant keeps things Stable while God works out all of his plans, particularly his redemptive plan to save his people in and through his son. So when you see then a rainbow in the cloud, remember it is God's bow. That it is a sign of his mercy to mankind in general. It is the reason why the world continues on. And it is a reminder too, in light of the New Testament, in light of what we know God has revealed to us in his plans to redeem a people in Christ. It is a reminder to us of just that. Mankind deserves God's judgment on account of our sins. It is true generally and it is true individually of you and I. So again, as you see that rainbow in the clouds, be sure that you're first trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior. Recall that God is faithful to keep his covenant promises. And he will not bring about a total judgment of the earth until he has called home all that he will save. And all who trust in Christ, he will indeed save to the uttermost. He is the faithful covenant-keeping God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We come to you as lowly creatures. Compared to your awesomeness, we are are nothing. Who Who are we? Who is man that you would be mindful of us? Yet, Father, we we read all over the pages of Scripture what it is that we deserve because of our sins. But we also read in the pages of Scripture that you are abounding in steadfast love, 
and faithfulness, that you are slow to anger. We read that you are the God who keeps your word and keeps your covenant promises. You cannot do otherwise. When you swear oaths and enter into covenant with man, we are reminded of this, of your greatness. Father, I pray that as we see even the rainbow and the clouds, that we would be reminded not simply of a natural phenomenon that is beautiful to the sight, but that you have given it as a sign to us. Father, I pray that we would not, that nobody here would presume upon your mercy. Father, while you have declared that you will not bring about a worldwide flood as you did in Noah's day, we know nevertheless that at any moment our souls could be required of us. Father, I pray, young and old, that we would not wait around or put off the things of the Lord. Father, I pray that you would make it our great concern to trust you, to know you, and to be about your business. Father, help us to love our neighbors around us, who are lost to contribute to the world around us in meaningful ways. Father, help us also to go into the world boldly with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there is eternal life in his name. Father, we thank you that you have not dealt with us according to how our sins deserve, but mercifully in and through your Son. Father, I just pray that you would just imprint these things upon our minds in a fresh way in these days. We are in continual need of your your help and your mercy every day. So we call out to you, we pray to you, And we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.